I welcome you as well to Grace Redeemer Community Church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Uh, just thrilled to uh, be able to preach the word and uh, speak to you all this morning, this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, so before uh, we begin, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask uh, his blessing on our time together. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessing of connecting online, uh, connecting with the people who are able to be here. Lord, we thank you for your magnificent word. Lord, I pray for the message this morning. I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will do the work now to come and help us to have what you have for us this morning, Lord. I pray that uh, this topic is not divisive, and yet at the same time, I pray that your truth uh, is spoken, and uh, Lord, that you will bless it. Lord, we lift up uh, the people in our church who are lonely, who are hurting. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that we'll be back in this building together again soon. And Lord, we just lift all these prayer requests up to you in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans uh, in a message that I am calling uh, The Necessity of a Historical Adam. And this is from Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, what we have seen uh, already is that uh, Paul has been talking about Adam and contrasting uh, Adam with, the, uh, with Jesus and the one work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we want to talk about this a little more today. So uh, if you remember uh, back in the 1970s, uh, there was a show called Columbo. And Columbo, his famous tagline was, just one more thing. And whenever he said that to you, you knew you were in it deep because that was the thing he was going to say to you just before he started a line of questioning that was going to nail you for the crime uh, that you had committed. And so uh, if you heard just one more thing, uh, you were in a world of hurt. Well, uh, I have just one more thing to say to you this morning, and you're not going to be in a world of hurt because of it, uh, but I can't leave this passage, Romans 5, 12 to 21, without talking about just this one more thing. Uh, because last week we talked about how sin and death entered into the world through Adam, and we also talked about how uh, Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race. And we talked about how we have inherited now Adam's sin nature uh, as a result of Adam's sin. And we talked about uh, the comparisons that Paul made in that passage last week between uh, the one thing, the one transgression, the one sin of Adam, and the one work of Christ, the one act of obedience. And we talked about the differing results that come uh, through Adam, death entered into the world, but through Christ, uh, we are saved. He reversed the curse of Adam's transgression. And so uh, we also said, uh, just in passing, that Jesus and Paul both believed in a historical Adam and that we should too. Uh, and so my just one more thing this week is that I think it's imperative that we go back and cover this ground again and just talk about why it is so important that we believe in a historical Adam because so much depends on this fact. And so I want us to, to think about what's at stake here. What's at stake? Let's read Romans 5.12 and we'll talk about it. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You know, a literal 
Adam and Eve have been a part of Orthodox Christianity for 18 and a half centuries before Darwin's theory uh, in the middle 1800s. Uh, and now uh, we're all aware of the ongoing battle that exists between creation and evolution, uh, between a real Adam or a fictitious Adam, uh, between science and the Bible. Uh, these things are not new to us. Uh, we know all about them, but this was not the case for the first 18 and a half centuries of Christianity. Uh, now, we would expect, uh, in light of uh, evolution and science, we would expect atheists to deny a literal Adam and Eve, right? That's not surprising to us. But what is surprising to us, at least to me, is that over the past uh, several decades, uh, people who call themselves evangelical Christians or people who hold to Reformed theology, but people who we would say are our brothers and sisters in Christ, have more and more increasingly abandoned the idea of a literal, real, historical Adam and Eve. And uh, we, when we think about the reason why, the only reason why is because they're trying to reconcile this idea of evolution and billions of years with the idea of uh, a historical Adam. And, and it's hard to, for them uh, to do that. To, the, so the, the heart of this shift is the desire uh, to reconcile the Bible with evolution and, and hold science over, uh, over the Bible. Uh, so how do they do it? Uh, what, what are some of the things that these evangelicals say? Uh, some say some say that Adam wasn't a real person at all. Uh, they say that he was just a, a representative, a symbolic representative of mankind, and he wasn't intended to be a real historical figure. Uh, so uh, then there are others who uh, they, they would say that Adam actually was a real person, uh, but they, they have to uh, change what they believe about him or, or change what they argue about him. Uh, they might argue that there is a real, a literal Adam and Eve, but what they'll say is that Adam and Eve were just uh, two people in the long line, the billions of years of evolution, uh, who God uh, chose out of all the people who had evolved over time and uh, decided to uh, create a special relationship with them, to give them consciousness, self-awareness, and the ability to worship God that none of the other existing creatures already had. Uh, so that's one thing they say. Another thing they say is that uh, evolution has proceeded over billions of years, and yet, uh, uh, you know, man evolved from apes, but God, at some point during the evolutionary process, created two special people, Adam and Eve, outside of the evolutionary process, and he chose those two, and those are the literal Adam and Eve, and those two uh, obviously were able to uh, live among the uh, humans who already existed and procreate with them, and, and so the human race continued, but they're a special creation after billions of years had passed. And so uh, those are the theories that are out there. And remember, these are evangelical Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, many of them who hold to this. And so anyone who holds to these kinds of theories, uh, there has to be some kind of compromise with the literal historical interpretation of the Bible. Uh, if you're going to, to say this, you have to say that uh, Genesis, at least the early chapters of Genesis, were not meant to be taken literally, historically. Uh, you're going to say that they're not intended to report actual historical facts. And to get there, you have to say uh, that Genesis, the early chapters at least, are poetry, not intended to be taken literally. Or you have to say that the early chapters of Genesis are intended to be an allegory or myth. 
uh, or be taken symbolically. Uh, so uh, you have to do something to uh, take away the literal language of what it says. And then to account for the billions of years, you have to add uh, some kind of theory. Uh, some people insert what they call the gap theory, which means that there are billions of years between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. You'll have to look at your Bibles and see that. Insert billions of years in between those two verses. And that would account for uh, the, uh, the long period of time. Or you might subscribe to what is called the day-age theory. Instead of six literal 24-hour days, uh, those days each equaled billions of years. Uh, you'd have to subscribe to that theory, and that's how you get to billions of years and evolution, taking away uh, some of the uh, literal historical language that is contained in Genesis. But it's all designed to try to harmonize science with the language of the Bible and the biblical creation account. Now, I will be the first one to admit that uh, the science that exists today that says that the world, the earth, is very old appears to be very good science. It really does. It appears to be very good science. Uh, most history museums, if you've ever gone to a museum of natural history, there are exhibits all over the place that show that the world is billions of years old and they uh, talk about how dinosaurs were made extinct 65 million years ago uh, and they have all these dating methods that they use to prove it. And, and you know, some of it seems like a good science to me. I'm not a scientist, but I know a lot of scientists believe it. So there are also professors at seminaries, the seminary I went to even, and learned scholars who I admire who hold to an old earth. Although I don't believe any professor at DTS would say that Adam and Eve were not literal uh, people, but uh, I couldn't swear to that. I don't know. Uh, but you have this idea of, of you know, what seems to be strong science and, and what, seems to, well, what the Bible clearly says, on the other hand, and uh, there seems to be a conflict. And, and in our postmodern era, uh, you know, science usually wins over biblical teaching. Right? If you talk to the man in the street, he's going to favor the, the science over what the Bible says. And so popular science tells us that the, that the uh, world, the earth, the universe, is some 13 billion years old. And popular science tells us that uh, Darwin's theory of evolution is settled science, right? This is not up for discussion anymore among scientists anyway, uh, most of them. Uh, those who control uh, the media anyway, those are the ones who, who seem to have uh, the idea of settled science. So the theory is that species evolved into other species over billions and billions of years as they acquired specialized traits that are necessary to survive and procreate. Uh, and so this is just the endless competition to survive, and it's built on the theory of death. Uh, death produces life, uh, and that's what evolution says. So uh, you have this, this seemingly old Earth. You have this theory of evolution, which science seems to be convinced of. And science may say it, but we have to say, well, is it true? Uh, and we have to ask, what is our response to these things? And we have to ask, why does it matter? Why is this important to us? Well. When we're sharing the gospel, when we're defending our faith, it is inevitable uh, that this evolution is going to come up. Billions of years are going to come up. Uh, and we may be laughed at as evangelicals, Bible-believing evangelicals, who hold to a literal Adam and Eve. Because people who uh, accept evolution as a fact can't reconcile it with a literal Adam and Eve. And so I just want us to understand that there is very much at stake uh, in defending the necessity of a literal Adam and Eve. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a salvation issue, uh, because to be saved, you just need to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you believe that, you are saved. But 
Denial of a literal Adam and Eve is a very slippery slope. Uh, without them, we destroy much of the foundation of Christian doctrine and Christian theology. And without a good foundation, when you destroy the foundation, the house soon crumbles and falls. And so when science and the Bible seem to conflict, uh, we have to re-examine science, not re-examine the Bible. And so when we interpret the Bible to accommodate science, what we're doing is we're starting on a slippery slope towards choosing the parts of the Bible we like and tossing the parts of the Bible that we don't like. And we also risk teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And so there's a lot at stake here, and I want us to recognize the issues that are at stake by denying or allegorizing a real Adam and Eve. The reliability of the Bible itself is at stake here. The Bible claims to be without error, uh, inspired by God, and to be authoritative over our lives. Can we trust what it says? Uh, if Adam and Eve were not real people, well, I don't know how we can trust what it says. Uh, why would we hold to anything the Bible says if Adam and Eve were not real people? And where do we draw the lines about who is real and who is not real? Why would we believe in a literal Noah or Abraham or Moses or Paul or Jesus even, and yet deny a literal Adam? Any, uh, or any distinctions that we make between them are arbitrary. Uh, there's no reason to believe in a real Jesus and not believe in a real Adam. Um, remember, too, that Jesus and Paul both believed in a real, literal, historical Adam. And if they were wrong, well, why not just toss the whole Bible? There's nothing left. What about the value of human life? If Adam and Eve were not actually people created in God's own image, then how is it that humans have any value over animals or, or any other thing uh, in creation? If we don't have inherent value as God's special creation, well, then why is murder wrong? Why is the Holocaust wrong? Why is abortion wrong? If babies are just evolutionary globs of protoplasm, what's the difference if we kill them? Uh, if we have no inherent value, then these things really, they're not issues anymore, right? We're just time and chance. And so we, we lose the, the uh, inherent value of human life. Now, what about the origin of sin? What about that? What about the Christian worldview about the origin of sin? What about the source of evil? What is the source of evil without a literal Adam and Eve? Why do we need a savior without a literal Adam and Eve? Uh, what did Jesus atone for on the cross, if not the sin that Adam brought into the world? If there was not a real Adam, where did sin and suffering come from? Who created evil? Why do we need a savior? What did Jesus die to redeem? All these issues are at stake without a literal historical Adam and Eve. But before we talk about all of these theological issues, I want us to look first at the biblical evidence for a literal, real Adam and Eve, and there is lots of it. So let's look first at the genealogies. Uh, we read Genesis, and we see that, that Genesis, actually, the first several chapters, reads like a genealogy. Uh, now, I'm going, not going to list every time that, Abra or that Adam's name appears here in Genesis. It appears many times. Uh, but what I do want us to notice is that when we read Genesis, it does not read like uh, some of the ancient Near East mythology uh, that was present uh, in the day, uh, which reads more like science fiction fantasies than actual historical narrative. Uh, and what we see when we read Genesis is that it actually reads like history. It records events that actually happened. 
uh, Adam and Adam was created. Uh, Adam married Eve. Adam had children. We're not told how old he was when Cain and Abel were born, but we are told specifically that he was 130 years old when Seth was born. We're told that he died at 930 years old. And so literal facts about a historical person are what are being recorded. All of Adam's descendants, uh, the length of their lives and the fact of their death are all recorded and reported in the same way, re rec recorded as historical facts. And so Adam started a line of historical people, uh, a genealogy that continues to this day. So we have the genealogy of Genesis. We also have the genealogy from 1 Chronicles uh, chapters 1 through 10. That's a long genealogy. Uh, all, of, uh, all of Adam's descendants, uh, all of uh, Joseph's, or Jacob's descendants, and his descendants' descendants, all their genealogies are in uh, this long 10-chapter genealogy. But what I want us to see is that Adam's genealogy is specifically listed. So from Adam, uh, it goes to Abraham, to Jacob, to his sons and their lines, and to David. And each and every person in these genealogies are presented as real people. Uh, everybody in there. And so that's what we have in the Old Testament, this genealogy. And, and if you happen to say, well, all right, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, Luke chapter 3 also contains a genealogy. And it goes from, instead of Adam forward, it goes from Jesus backward. And if you look at it, uh, remember Luke before, at, at the, uh, in the first couple verses of his gospel, he said, I carefully investigated all things before I wrote these things down. And so his investigation led him to include this genealogy that uh, starts at Jesus and dates back through his ancestors to David, to Jacob, to Abraham, Noah, Enosh, Seth, and Adam, all the way back. And so these genealogies all uh, affirm a real historical Adam. What about the Apostle Paul? What does he have to say? Well, we know about this passage that we've been working through, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. But he also mentions a literal Adam several times in his other uh, epistles. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So he mentions him. And then you see that he uh, uses the parallelism, they die in Adam, they live in Christ. So without a, li a living Adam, the second half of the parallelism doesn't make any sense. Uh, same thing in 1 Corinthians 15.45. The first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So again, the second part doesn't make sense without the first part being real. 2 Corinthians 11, he mentions... Eve as a historical uh, person. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So again, citing Eve as a historical character. And then he wrote also, Paul, in 1 Timothy, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So there's never a point in time where we would question whether uh, Paul believes in a real Adam and Eve. He obviously does. Uh, Jude mentions Adam. In uh, his short epistle, he says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. So Jude here mentions Adam again as a historical uh, person. And of course, we can't forget Jesus. 
Remember when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? This was Jesus' answer. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to each other and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, after Jesus said this to the Pharisees, uh, the referral, the argument of Adam and Eve, that was left completely unchallenged by the Pharisees, right? Adam and Eve and the fact that God joined them together settled the matter. And also notice that the Pharisees didn't then say, wait a minute, Adam and Eve weren't real historical people. No, they didn't say that. They believed in a real Adam and Eve just like Jesus did. And I want us to notice one more thing about uh, how Jesus handled this issue. Uh, Jesus believed in a literal historical Adam because, remember when he was arguing with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he said, If you believed Moses, you would also believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus believed Moses' writings. He was accusing the Pharisees of not believing Moses' writings. Who wrote Genesis? Moses did. So Jesus believed Moses' writings. In fact, if you read John 1, Jesus was there when Adam and Eve were created. So obviously he believed in a real, literal Adam and Eve. And the Pharisees did just like, uh, like he did. So do we really want to say that Jesus was wrong when he said that Adam and Eve were real? Do, do we really want to go there? Because where do you think that is going to take us if that is what we start to say about Jesus? Uh, if we do that, we might as well throw out Christ's deity. And if we do that, well, then we just throw out Christianity, right? There's nothing left of it at that point. So that is the biblical data. There's more, but that's the main biblical data for the existence of a literal historical Adam and Eve, the first human beings, not human beings in a long line after billions of years, the first people ever created by God. And so the question becomes, why does it matter? Let's talk then about the theological necessity of a literal Adam. You know, the Bible is God's story, right? A God's story is presented in four parts. There's the creation, there's fall, there's redemption, and there's restoration. That's the Bible's story. God created the world. We see that in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And when he did that, he said it was very good. And then Adam sinned, and sin and death entered into the world. That's called the fall. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. From Genesis chapter 3 on, all the way to the end of the Bible, the whole Bible is the story about how God is going to redeem what was lost through Adam's sin through Jesus Christ. And then at the end, when we get to Revelation, we see how the whole world is going to be restored to the perfect condition that it was in before Adam sinned. That's our biblical worldview as Christians. Uh, it accounts for creation, sin, the existence of evil and suffering, the meaning of life, our inherent value as God's creatures, our need for a savior, redemption through Jesus Christ, God's wrath against sin and Jesus's propitiation of it, the restoration of all things. Now, all of these doctrines, every single one of them suffers harm without a literal historical Adam and Eve. And so we have to interpret every so-called truth claim through that biblical worldview. And the first issue, 
that we have to address is the Bible itself. The Bible itself. Here's what the Bible testifies about itself. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the Bible claims to be inspired by God. The word for inspired in the Greek is, is a word that actually means God breathed. God breathed out the words of scripture. And God is holy and he's perfect and he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. And since he is God, there can be no errors in the Bible. But if there was no literal Adam and Eve, then the Bible is wrong at best, or misleading, or confusing uh, at worst. Uh, and so once we dispense with a literal Adam and Eve, who can say uh, what's true in the Bible and what's not true in the Bible? Why should we believe any of it? If the Bible contains errors, then it's only a human work. It's not a work of God, and so it's as untrustworthy as every other human work, and it's not inspired or authoritative over our lives. If we deny, a literal Adam and Eve, there's no reason to believe in a historical Jesus either. Why not allegorize Jesus' death and resurrection? Uh, why say that Jesus lived at all? We believe, that it's the, we believe the Bible because it is God's word. And God intended to convey information when he gave us his word. And God intended us to understand it. Now, if we interpret it spiritually, mythologically, allegorically, then it says whatever you want it to say. The Bible becomes worthless unless God intended to communicate with us, and he did communicate truth to us. Now, another huge problem with God-guided evolution over billions of years is that Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So Adam did not become a living being until God breathed the breath of life into him and God formed him from the dust of the ground. So it's impossible that Adam came from a living being, from a pre-existing creature. He could not have. And Eve was created from Adam's body, from one of Adam's ribs. And so the creation of Adam and Eve cannot be harmonized with the theory of evolution. Adam and Eve were created from pre-existing matter, not pre-existing primates. And so a literal, historical Adam and Eve are necessary for the trustworthiness of the Bible, for the character of God, and for the truth of the words that Jesus spoke. The very Bible, the whole thing, is at stake if we toss Adam and Eve. What about the value of human life? Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And then a few verses later, behold, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. To be created in God's image means that we share some of the attributes of God, right? We have intelligence, we have a consciousness, we have a sense of morality, uh, we have the ability to love and care for one another and be in relationship with one another as God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are in relationship with each other in the Trinity. It also means that Adam and Eve were born into a world without sin, and without a sin nature. Since God is without sin, and since he called his creatures 
very good. He could not call them that if they had a sin nature. And so without a literal Adam and Eve created good, if Adam and Eve are just the result of time and chance and billions of years, he has no special value at all. Time and chance cannot explain man's consciousness, his, his moral compass, uh, his self-awareness, and no argument can be made for why it's wrong to kill each other. A life has no meaning or value without a literal Adam and Eve. What Hitler did was fine because might makes right, and that can't be right. So the value of human life is at stake without a literal Adam and Eve. What about sin and death? Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If sin and death did not enter the world through Adam, through a literal Adam, as a result of their personal choice, think about the implications. If evolution is true, that means that death has been in the world since the very beginning. The entire theory of evolution is built on the premise of death, and its calling card is the survival of the fittest. And so the strong survive, and they pass their traits on that were essential to their survival to their offspring. And the weak traits, those who are weak, the creatures that are weak, die, and the, tra the, 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 the traits that cause them to die are eliminated through this process of evolution, which filters out the traits of weakness and eliminates them through improvement by death upon death upon death. And through death, species evolved into other species. Over time, an ape became, became man, and inexplicably, he developed a moral compass, morality, uh, a conscience and self-awareness, but still, he continued to die in this never-ending process of evolution. And so death did not enter the world with Adam's sin. Death has always been in the world because death is an absolute necessity to the evolutionary process. And if this is true, God must be some kind of monster who likes to watch his creatures struggle and die to compete with each other uh, for life uh, by competition and death. And so we know that that's not true about God. Now, some argue that it's not physical death that entered into the world, but only spiritual death entered into the world when Adam sinned. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there was no physical death in the world until Adam sinned. But then after the fall, beginning with the genealogy in chapter 5 of Genesis, the familiar refrain, the repeated refrain was they were born, they lived, and they died. Physical death is what is being talked about here. They were already spiritually dead because of their sin nature. But Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, physical death. Spiritual death was already part of them, but physical death is what is required here. And so Jesus came to redeem physical death too. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And Revelation says that one day, death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so Christ came to redeem physical death that entered into the world with Adam. And none of this makes any sense if Adam didn't really live, really sin, and bring sin and death into the world. Well, what about evil and suffering? Where does that come from? God saw the world that he had made, and it was very good. Now, if there was not a literal Adam, then God did not create the world very good. The world never was good, and neither was man. The world has only been continually evil. 
And if that's true, well then how can we say that God is not the author of evil? How can we say that? Because it's always been in the world and God created it. He must be the author of evil. And so then God would not be holy. He would not be perfect. He would not be good. Do we really want to say that? Is that the road we want to go down? I don't think we do. Deuteronomy 32 says, His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So God made man without sin, without a sin nature, and Adam chose to disobey God. And it's the sin of Adam that causes the evil and suffering in the world. Now, God uses evil and suffering for good, but they're not his fault. A real Adam and Eve are necessary to explain evil and suffering in the world and why it exists today. So we have to have a literal Adam and Eve to account for evil and suffering. God's wrath and propitiation for sin. 1 John 2.2 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath. God is angry about sin. He, he pours his wrath out on sin. He's angry about it. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, Jesus satisfied God's wrath against sin by going to the cross to take on the sin of the whole world. Now, if Adam was not the first human being from whom all others inherited a sin nature, the doctrine of propitiation makes no sense. God would not have sent Jesus to die for sin if sin was already part of God's creation. So, uh, to deny Adam and Eve is to knock out the foundation of the idea of God's wrath and his propitiation for sin. Let's talk about redemption. Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Uh, to redeem something means simply to buy something back. Uh, and so if Adam didn't lose something by sinning and having sin and death enter into the world, there would be nothing for Jesus to buy back. Uh, when Adam sinned, physical death entered the world. Spiritual death entered the world. And God pronounced a curse on Adam. And he said that uh, the, the world would bear food for you, but only by the sweat of your brow. And it would be through pain that childbirth would happen. But God was gracious. He didn't take their physical lives that day. Instead, he promised them a savior after making animal skins for them to cover their nakedness. In Genesis 3.15, he said to the serpent, Satan, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so as early as Genesis 3, God is promising a redeemer, uh, somebody who will pay for the sin that uh, Adam and Eve committed. And so what happened was that uh, Satan bruised Jesus's heel at the crucifixion. We know what that, that's what that means. But then, depending on what your translation says, it may say uh, that, that Jesus bruised uh, Satan's head or crushed Satan's head, uh, depending on your translation, at the resurrection. He was victorious over sin and death, and he atoned for Adam's sin and the sin of the whole world. And we claim victory by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross for our salvation. 
And there's still more to come, as we looked at in chapter 5 of Romans, about the future benefits of justification that are still coming. One day Jesus will cast Satan and death into the lake of fire. Restoration, Romans 8, talks about how the, the world is groaning under the weight of sin, even to this day. And Jesus promised to restore the entire world. In fact, to make a new creation to restore the world to the condition that it was in before Adam sinned. And the promise of a savior, the promise of a redeemer, the promise of restoration of all things makes no sense. It's meaningless without a literal Adam and Eve who sinned and lost something, brought sin and death into the world, required redemption, propitiation for sin, and need for restoration. And Paul's connection between Adam's sin and Jesus's one act of obedience through Romans 5 also makes no sense without a real Adam. Uh, so redemption is at stake at well. And life in Christ, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so you have to have, again, the parallelism that, that Paul writes with, all in Adam die, all in Christ live. If we did not die in Adam, then it makes no sense that we would live in Christ. The connection is clear. And so if Adam is a myth, why do we need Christ? Well, by now, you can tell that I'm pretty passionate about uh, the authority of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, and a literal Adam and Eve. Uh, rejection of Adam and Eve as the first human beings from whom all others descend undermines the gospel. The doctrines of sin, imputation of sin, our sin nature, the need for a savior, the existence of evil and suffering, propitiation for sin, redemption, Jesus' destruction of sin, death, and Satan, and the restoration of all things at his second coming are all damaged without a literal Adam and Eve. So let me leave you with two concluding thoughts by way of application here. And here's what I would say. The first thing is this, reject scientism. That's not science. Scientism is almost a religion. Scientism is, is the religion of exalting science over everything else, including the Bible and including biblical doctrine. And you can find it everywhere right now. And as I said, even evangelicals, many of them are guilty of reinterpreting the Bible to accommodate science. Now, Christians should not fear science. A science rightly done, rightly interpreted, rightly motivated is good. Uh, science has never overturned or disproved anything from the Bible, and it never will. So evolutionists, they don't even agree themselves on the mechanics of evolution or how to account for the lack of proof in the fossil record. So uh, be careful of anything that anybody says is settled science. It's a long way from settled science. And, uh, you know, a flat earth was once considered settled, settled science. So we have to beware of uh, what is considered settled science. Let's not reject clear biblical teaching in the attempt to harmonize science with the Bible. So reject this religion of scientism. And second, be confident in biblical truth. The Bible affirms Adam as a literal person in the Genesis account, the genealogies, Paul's theology, and Jesus' teaching on Adam and Eve. And proper doctrine is important. We have to have true doctrine. And I keep saying that without a, an historical Adam and Eve, Christianity loses its foundation. And without a foundation, the house crumbles. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may, can, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so I just want us this morning to be sure that we continue to build our theological house on the rock. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we trust in the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that your truth will go around the world, Lord, and, and that it will be heard. Lord, we pray that we don't compromise biblical doctrine. Lord, we've seen today, I pray, uh, that there's a lot at stake when we start uh, cherry-picking parts of the Bible that we like, or if we uh, try to harmonize parts of the Bible uh, with science. Lord, there is a lot of danger. And I pray that this uh, sermon was uh, given in love, and I pray that it's not divisive, Lord, but I firmly believe that we must stand up for the biblical account uh, or so much is lost. So, Lord, I, ple I pray that uh, these words... Lord, if, if any of them are untrue, that you will blow them away like chaff. And if they are true, Lord, that they will uh, be harvested like wheat and that we would hold them as true in our lives. Lord, I thank you for your son who came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins so that we may go to heaven. And Lord, whether it's necessary to believe in a literal Adam and Eve for that or not, you know. Uh, but we do know that we must believe the gospel, Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone out there who has not yet received it, that they would receive the gospel, Lord, and be saved. And we pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen.